Is Christianity or Secular Humanism a Better Foundation for Human Rights? A conversation between a Christian and a secular humanist. This is a recording of an event that was hosted on February 28, 2018 by Apologetics Canada in partnership with Westside Church in Vancouver, BC. In it, we seek to answer the question, which worldview provides a better foundation for human rights, Christianity or Secular Humanism? I'm Ian Bushfield, Executive Director of the BC Humanist Association, and I'm speaking in this dialogue with Dr. Andy Bannister, Director for the Solace Centre for Public Christianity. To find more about our association, visit www.bchumanist.ca. Well, good evening. My name is Steve Kim, and I'm a senior teaching associate with Apologetics Canada, meaning I'm Andy's bond servant. Um, <laughs> wonderful time working for him and with him. And after a while, you, when you spend a lot of time together, you start to look like one another. <clears throat> Let me just get right into it. I'll introduce our speakers, and I'll uh, go through the format of the evening, and we'll jump right into it. To my left and to your right is Andy Bannister. He is the director of Solace Center for Public Christianity in Scotland and an adjunct speaker with Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. Prior to working with Solace, uh, Andy was director and lead apologist at the Canadian office of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. He holds a PhD in Islamic studies and is an adjunct research fellow at the Center for the Study of Islam and Other Faiths at Melbourne School of Theology. Um, he has authored a number of books, uh, one academic one, uh, an oral formulaic study of the Quran. That should be interesting. Uh, his latest book, The Atheist Who Didn't Exist, uh, is a humorous engagement with the new atheism. Uh, when he's not traveling, speaking, or writing, Andy is a keen hiker, he's a mountain climber, and a photographer. He's married to Astrid, and they have two children, Katrina, right? Uh, a very unique spelling here, uh, and Christopher. <laughs> So that is Andy Bannister. To my right and to your left is Ian Bushfield. Ian is the executive director of the BC Humanist Association, an organization that has been providing a community and voice for humanists, atheists, agnostics, and the non-religious of Metro Vancouver and British Columbia for over 30 years. Ian grew up outside of Calgary and earned a bachelor's uh, degree in science and in engineering physics mm -hmm. uh, from the University of Alberta. He went on to earn a master's of science in physics from Simon Fraser University before moving into the nonprofit sector. He's worked with charities for people with cerebral palsy and a science advocacy charity in the UK. He's written for his own blog, student newspapers at the University of Alberta and SFU, uh, Canada.com, and, and he's been published in the British Medical Journal. So why don't we put our hands together and welcome them here tonight. Thank you both for joining us. Um, as we get into this dialogue, just quickly, I'll go over the format here. We're gonna have about 60 minutes of moderated dialogue, and then we're gonna take a quick break, and then we'll have a time of Q&A. Uh, we should be done around 9.30, and everybody's supposed to be out of the building by 10. But 9.30 is the hard stop there. Uh, and please respect our speakers. Uh, no cheering or jeering during the conversation. And please hold your applause until after uh, the dialogue to show our speakers our appreciation. And uh, during Q&A, we ask that you keep your questions 
uh, brief and to the point. It's Q&A, questions and answers, not SNA, sermons and analysis. That's not what we're here to do. So please, as, as you're listening to the conversation, please formulate your questions in your mind so that when you have the microphone, you can just fire off that question. And in, uh, in order to respect everybody's time as well, please keep it brief. So, Ian, let's start with you. Um, you're the, uh, the executive director of the BC Humanist Association. Now, uh, you're a secular humanist. What does that mean to be a secular humanist? Because I, I suspect that there will be probably some people here who might not be very familiar with what secular humanism is. I'm really glad you asked me that, and it's a great way to start because that was actually what I was thinking about asking Andy what he would think it was, but we can maybe get to that in a minute. For me, a secular humanist is someone whose morality is based on human reason, human compassion, and an approach that doesn't appeal to a supernatural. So humanists are generally atheists or agnostic, not really concerned with the supernatural. We have human answers for human questions. Okay, so um, then, uh, I'm just curious, uh, uh, what do you do with BC Humanist Association? What kinds of work do you, do, do you guys do? Oh, that's a great question. It helps me make my fundraising pitch to make sure I can keep being employed, <laughs> right? <laughs> so my work involves, like I put in the intro there, being a community and a voice for humanists. So the non-religious in BC, which is actually a majority in this province, most people aren't coming to church on a weekly basis, and a lot of people in this province even historically, aren't really engaged with religion. I'm reading this really fascinating book, Infidels and the Damned Churches, which is about irreligion in like settler BC. And apparently even then, BC was the godless frontier country. But outside church, people still have a need for a community. They have this need for communion with other people, maybe not in the capital C, Jesus communion way, but in the meeting other people and building social groups. And so we try to do that through Sunday morning lectures, Conveniently, our members are all free that time of day. We also try to put on some social events. We've done uh, bottle so or food sorting at the food bank recently. We've done blood drives and those kind of things. And then we also try to do some more campaigning work to provide that voice. We campaign for humanist values, for secularism, for religious freedom, because it should be as free to say you don't believe in God as you are to say you believe in God, and there shouldn't be any... I think we can all agree on that, and those kind of things. And so. Lots of yeah, work. thank you for that. Um, I, from what I've seen of the BC Humanist Association, you guys also do a lot of um, advocacy work for human rights and things like that. Right? So, um, so my question is, as a secular humanist and often as an atheist or agnostics and other kinds of skeptics, how do you ground human rights? What sort of a thing is a human right in your view and how do you justify that? It's a the huge question, right? It's what we're here to answer tonight. And I think there's lots of different answers we can approach it, or lots of different ways we can approach that question. And I've been thinking about this since you first emailed me, obviously, even before that. Some of the ways I think about it is human rights really are this evolving tool set we've developed as a species to get along, to live peacefully, to try to promote human flourishing, as the Human Project puts it so eloquently. So human rights, for me, are something that we've developed. Now, I know that worries some theists in that we could undevelop them, we could roll them back. And that's why I think we always need to be vigilant and advocate 
advocate for peace and for discussion and for dialogue and democracy. Okay. Um, let's come to you, Andy. Um, Steve. Human rights. You, you're a theist. I um, think I am, yes. I think yes. That's that. I'm representing that side of the discussion. Yes. So, <laughs> how, for you, what is a human right? And is this something that, uh, that has to come from theism mm. necessarily? Or is this something that, like Ian said, is this something that we mm. invent? Or do you think this is yeah. something that uh, we'd rather discover? You know, it's really interesting, actually, and I've, I've, firstly, I'd say really grateful that Ian's here because this will be a mixed audience, but still, it can be hard walking into a venue uh, kind of this where you may be outnumbered because I've been on the other side of these kind of discussions. So really grateful that Ian's uh, willing to be part of this this evening, and I, and I think there's some great food for thought already in some of what, what he shared. But I love the way you frame that, Steve. I mean, I think one of the big questions we need to think about is exactly that. Are human rights discovered? Do we go out there and go, ah, oh, these things... These things exist, they're part of reality, or are they something we construct? And that's quite an important question. For example, if there's some, merely something we construct, it's not so much the issue, I think, that we can deconstruct them. The issue that we run into, I was uh, talking to a university student at the University of Aberdeen a few weeks ago um, around this. She, she self-identified as a communist rather than <laughs> humanist, but was nevertheless quite, quite passionate about human rights, which I found <laughs> intriguing. Um, but the question I put to her is she said, well, I think we just invent these things, and I, and I think they're great. I think they're you know, a wonderful thing, that particularly in the West that we developed. I just looked at her and sort of smiled ironically and said, so if they're merely a Western construction, then presumably if we tell countries outside the West that they should adhere to human rights, we're being imperialistic, we're imposing our cultural values, uh, we're pressing our preferences onto others because not everyone does necessarily agree in human rights. Uh, you only have to look at many countries in the world to realize there's an issue, uh, there's an issue here. So I think that, that flows out of the question of are they discovered or are they invented? Because if they're invented, how far of a right do we have to hold others to account around them? But really the heart of this, Steve, to me, uh, as I think about this from a Christian perspective, I was reading this morning and reminding myself of, the, of the, these wonderful words from the United, Universal Declaration of Human Rights from 1948, uh, you know, the, one of the sort of founding documents of, of modern human rights theory. And the preamble to that document is really interesting. Let me just read you a couple of sentences. It says, recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom and justice and peace in the world. All human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. And so that document from 1948 really sort of, you know, that founding building block of, of, of the human rights sort of construction that we have today. But of course, built into that are a number of, a number of claims that I think we need to press into this evening. Uh, language like inherent dignity. Does that, what does that mean to say that the person sitting next to you this evening has inherent dignity? What does it mean to say that we, we are all equal, as, as Maddie in the video raised that very question, when we're clearly unequal in a whole range of things? And, and I think some of the language used there in the UDHDR and, and other uh, human rights documents, I think makes a lot more sense on a Christian perspective. Um, where in the Judeo-Christian tradition, that idea that all human beings are created in the, in the image of God, to use the biblical language, meaning that you and Stephen, Ian, each one of us here this evening, no matter our background, our race, our religion, our creed, our color, our, uh, our family history, our earning potential, our ability or inability, whatever it is, 
we fundamentally, uh, in the very nature of being human, bear that dignity, uh, have that value, and out of that flows rights and responsibilities and a whole range of other things. So I think these questions really matter. Okay. Um, so what's your, what's your response to that then? I, I, I'm just curious, when I think of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights... A good document. This is a man-made document, isn't it? This is not something that was revealed to us. We, as humanity came together, there were, uh, as I see it, there were lots of different kinds of people that were involved, Pakistanis, Chinese, yeah. mm. and Americans, and so on, and so on and so forth. So what's your take on this? Do, you, do we need to have theism, or even Christian theism necessarily, to have something like human rights or the Universal Declaration of Human Rights? Oh, I... Obviously, like the way you frame that, you're doing great at asking questions tonight, right? Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Always compliment the moderator. Always compliment. We've got to have him on our side, right? So, <laughs> the, it is a human document. That's undeniable. There, we can look at videos and, or you know, people who wrote it lived, and we know who they are, and we can find their names, and it was created by humans. But Andy's right. There are assumptions based into it, and those assumptions had to come from somewhere. But my view, my personal view at least, is those assumptions come from our sort of collective cultural understandings. And we've had different cultures come to the same sort of answers. The golden rule is not a Christian invention. It exists in Christianity, but it exists in Confucianism. It exists in Hinduism, and I'm sure Andy can tell us very detailed how it exists in Islam, because he's well studied in that. And I, one of the things I was going to say off the start is, you know, I'm not a philosopher, I'm not a doctor in theology or any of these questions, so I'm actually quite undereducated to be at this stage, so whoever highly recommended me, <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> hopefully you get your money's worth. But. And he did come highly recommended. So, but I do think that these questions are worth asking and worth thinking about. You know, I try to seek the truth for like everyone here, I think. But when I think about sort of the supernatural, and I have tried praying as a child, and I have tried reaching out for that, and it's just never... It's never connected with me. I've never felt it. But I have felt, as I've learned about science and as I've learned about philosophy, and I've sort of dabbled in all of these things, and that's where I see how human rights are sort of this evolving thing. The human rights we have today, like just last year, the federal government added two new sections to the human rights code in this country. They added gender identity expression, and they added genetic information. Genetic information means they can't discriminate you based on your DNA which is actually really important for health insurance companies and all that kind of thing. But if you'd told the people at the UN Declaration of Rights who are writing it, you know, we need to put your DNA in there. They didn't even know what DNA was. And so we're sort of figuring these things out, and you know, trans rights and uh, same-sex marriage and these kind of things have evolved as we've realized, like we were talking, or like we saw in that video with Maddie, the importance of human dignity and sort of autonomy and letting people be themselves without facing racial slurs, homophobic slurs. Today's anti-pink uh, shirt day, right? It's the day to oppose homophobic and transphobic bullying. So it's actually a really good day to be holding this discussion. Yeah, I rambled a bit there. No, this is this is great. This is exactly what we're looking for. Now, um, one of the one of the uh, concerns that come out of this idea that, um, that so so are you saying then? we discover these moral truths as different cultures come together, that there is something that's transcendent beyond us? Or are you saying 
this is just something that's innate in us that as different cultures come together are revealed and we can discover that as we go together. I think within an atheistic and humanistic framework, you can sort of view it as two ways. You could see this as human rights are the best way. Like they are a truth in the same way that gravity is a truth in that for societies to operate, there are certain rules that will work and certain that won't. And if you use liberal, secular, humanist values, you get more functional society. We can sort of see this with looking at global indices of what are the most peaceful, um, equal countries, like the Scandinavian countries. Canada usually does pretty well. New Zealand and Australia, countries that have adopted human rights as a core. Now, that doesn't mean you can't be in support of human rights without being an atheist, obviously, right? And which way does that causal arrow flow? It's not clear. Does a country that supports human rights make atheists, or do atheists make a country that supports human rights? I think the latter is obviously not true, because you'll bring up Soviet Union and communist China, and I don't want to oh, go I down would, that road. I, would, I, I don't want to go down that road. such terrible thing like that. <laughs> yeah. Can we just promise not to bring up Hitler? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, that's just... Uh, so that, was uh, that was Steve's next question, I think. <laughs> so, Hitler and Nazism, because... Uh, so, bad guy, right? Yeah, because... Sure, angry people. They're, yeah. they're trouble in history. That is like the ultimate labeling right there. You know, Hitler and Nazis. Apparently, you win all arguments just by calling whoever you don't like, whose opinions you disagree with. Um, we won't go there. <laughs> so, what, what's your response to Ian? Oh gosh, because I think Ian said so many things there. So, uh, so that's uh, that's that's great. I'd say a, a couple of things. I think it's interesting there. I think one of the first things, of course, it's interesting, is to look at again back to where where human rights initially came from, where modern human rights theory emerged from. And so, a lot of the thinking that became um, you know the kind of, sort of modern kind of sort of doctrine of human rights emerged after World War II, and particularly the Nuremberg trials are often talked about historically. So the Nuremberg trials were the trials where the leading officers and members of the Third Reich and the Nazis, we won't mention the H, but we'll mention the, the Third Reich anyway, were put on trial for the actions that they'd carried out, the final solution and so on and so forth. And what was interesting was most of the former, most of the senior leadership of the Third Reich tried the same defense. They tried mounting the defense of saying, well, hang on, we were just following the laws of our country. And it's a good thing to follow the laws of your country. In fact, you can find many people today who will tell you that morality is simply you know, determined by the state and you know, it's a good thing to do what the, what the state commands. And this was what the, uh, the Third Reich uh, sort of leadership and SS officers and so forth tried. And the Nuremberg judges uh, ruled uh, to a man and to one woman, because of what, there was one woman on the panel back then, um, that there are standards of human behavior, there are such things, there are, there are values and norms and so on and so forth that transcend culture. And it doesn't matter what your culture tells you, Nevertheless, there are times when you need to thumb your nose at your culture and do otherwise. And I think one of the interesting discussions around human rights is what happens when cultures disagree with each other. Because we can all talk about how wonderful it is to be here in Canada with anti-bullying initiatives and so forth. You mentioned Scandinavia. My, my wife is half Scandinavian, so we know those kind of cultures well. But we also have to recognize there are cultures that take a very different view of human rights. I mean, you mentioned Islam, in my own area of study. Actually, many of the Islamic Muslim majority countries have actually pushed back on the UDHR and have constructed their own uh, human rights document, which removes some of the fundamental rights in the, in the Universal Declaration, particularly, of course, 
freedom to religion, freedom to change religion, and so forth. Um, China is increasingly in its interactions with the West taking quite a firm stance on human rights, particularly around political association and uh, freedom of speech and, and so on and so forth. So I think the world is actually a, a far more complex place uh, than we realize is the, is the first thing. Secondly, I think it's also interesting um, to look at, back to where those who really pulled human rights thinking together got their ideas from. Because it's very tempting to throw around terms like sort of, you know, secular humanism in such a way that implies that, you know, human rights is largely a kind of secular phenomena. A lot of the more recent work done academically on this has shown that actually a lot of the origins of uh, what we take for granted as more modern ideas about human rights have a much older foundation. And you can trace them right back into the Middle Ages, the 1100s and 1200s, as a, as a a lot of the sort of uh, Christian philosophers and theologians of the time were reflecting on what in the Catholic tradition was known as natural law. Um, that's the, that sort of system of morality and ethics and values that is part of the very fundamental reality of things because of the way God has constructed things. And even if we look back to you know, people we often take you know, for granted as perhaps operating under a more secular uh, sort of model, when you look at someone like, say, John Locke, for example, is often pointed to uh, in the humanist tradition as one of the sort of great think thinkers uh, on sort of human rights and liberties and so forth. Even he basically runs a theistic argument and says that human beings are, uh, are equal and that we should not discriminate between them because, and I quote his words, he says, all men are, are, are share in the fact they are all the workmanship of the one omnipotent and infinitely wise maker, all the servants of one sovereign master sent into the world by his order and about his business, and he goes on and basically unpacks Genesis uh, chapter one, the image of God idea that I shared with you earlier. So I think it's interesting actually to push into the history of human rights and where it, where it came from, but then at the same time, to zero back in on that question, Steve, that you asked right at the start. Those noble words of the UDHR, are they actually true? Because I certainly agree with you that pragmatically we can invent codes of sort of non-aggression. I won't hit you, you don't hit me, but we're both still Steve's water. Um, Unless we run out. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> but when it comes down to things like you know, dignity and value, inalienable rights and so on and so forth, are we, actually, are we actually talking about reality or are we just playing word games to paper over some fairly fundamental cracks? Yeah, I want to jump in on that if that's fine. I mean... I want us to actually circle back from that question to what you're talking about with the Nuremberg trials and this idea that just following orders is not okay. And I'm, I'm totally on board with you there, right? But what I sort of have a problem with the theistic worldview is how is it much different though? You sort of posit a cosmic totalitarian almost who dictates that these are the human rights, these we must follow, his word is truth. So we've sort of passed the buck almost from, all right, if humans didn't invent human rights, you know, if it's not a social contract type thing like I'm talking about, but it's just God's word, well, it kind of brings us back to the Euthyphro uh, dilemma of the idea of is it good because God says it's good or is, it, is God saying it's good because it's good? You know, is there the higher good and then why don't we just appeal to that? And you know, the, I've heard the God is good definitional argument and it's just sort of unsatisfying to me. It's never really felt like that. So we're in this paradox of you know, we can put the supernatural creator in there and we can say, all right, his word is what is good and he gave us human rights. But it doesn't really solve the problem for me of, well, if he's just giving them, why should we? Because mm. the Bible doesn't give us that we should put DNA in the human rights code. 
Well, can I, can I press can the button? Oh. I just want to slow down <laughs> okay, here sorry, because sorry. I think uh, the youth of, road, youth of Road Dilemma uh, yeah. can be a bit unfamiliar. Many people might be unfamiliar with that. So uh, the Youth of Road Dilemma, as, uh, at least as it is phrased today, yeah. it is, um, is, God, is something good because God says it's good? Or does God say it's good because it is good to begin right. with? Right. So if the former is true, then just whatever God calls it good is good, so it becomes arbitrary. It's just everything is at his whim. So uh, I think what you were saying earlier is it's yeah. a cosmic uh, dictator, basically, totalitarian who just calls the shots. Uh, he might call rape good suddenly, and that would be the good thing. And, that's, and there are Bible absurd. passages where that happens, and it's a bit problematic, but I'm not a Bible scholar, so let's not get right. too deep into so, there. Uh, but on the other hand, it's, uh, it seems that if, there is, if God calls something good because it is good to begin with, then there is a standard of good that's outside of him. Mm-hmm. So then for a theist uh, who grounds morality in God, that becomes a real problem. I think hopefully that helps us understand where his objections are coming from. So... Andy, would you like to respond yeah, to that? Yeah, good. I think, uh, thanks. Thank you, uh, Steve. Great job in, in clarifying that. I'd say that, it's really interesting, actually, that you raise the, the, the youth refer dilemma because actually what's interesting, it cuts, it, it pops up in a number of ways. And actually, I think you hinted at this. It actually, of course, becomes a problem for secular humanism because you can run the same question on the state, for example. Are the rights, are the laws that the state uh, sets, are they good just because the state sets them? So if the state said it was okay uh, mm-hmm. to go around, you know, punching bald people in the face, it would be all right. And um, actually, in South Korea, interesting <laughs> trivia for you. There we are. We changed from being friends with the moderator. Exactly. Right. Exactly. In South Korea, if you punch somebody who's wearing glasses in the face, that's considered attempted murder. Just a little tidbit. Anyway, back to you. Perhaps we were. <laughs> we're going to put that over here. There. <laughs> Steve and I go way back, so um, I can, we, can, we can be rude to each other. Um, or, of course, is it the case that, um, that there's some standard of goodness out there? And, of course, that gets us right back to the question at the beginning. Um, the way, of course, that I think that Christian theism has always responded, I mean, you, I mean, you hinted at whether or not you find it satisfying doesn't, isn't actually an okay. answer as to whether it's true or not, is actually the same way that, in fact, Plato, the, great, the famous Greek philosopher, right back at the almost beginning of the philosophical mm-hmm. tradition, takes the same route. When the, 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 you know, the word that he uses for who God is, he calls God the good. And this idea that God in his very nature is, is good, and that, in one sense, cuts through the philosophical, cuts through the dilemma, which is why, in philosophy of religion, really no one takes you through that. That, that seriously anymore. What I would say is this though, if there is a God who created reality, if there is a God who stands behind every atom, every molecule, the God who as it were, you know, breathed fire into the equations of physics as Einstein put it, that means that to use a language, and Steve is very good at unpacking terms, so I'll throw a term out and let you know, my turn for Steve to then unpack it for you to the audience this evening. If uh, ontologically, in terms of our very nature as human beings, we bear value a dignity, per, basically, but firstly, because God designed that into us when he created us, but also the, the Christian tradition would also say the reason, one of the reasons that you have value and dignity, Ian, is because, because God loves you tremendously and demonstrated that when he went to the cross in the person of Jesus, even though you wanted nothing to do with him. And value is conferred in one sense 
by what someone is prepared to pay. And the Christian tradition says that God paid the life of Jesus for each one of us, which means that for those of us, whether we are atheists or humanists or Buddhists or Hindus or Muslims or Christians or whatever, if the story I've described is the story of reality, that means that in your very nature you have value and you have dignity. It's nothing to do with God throwing laws around so much as something about the very way that you are constituted as a human being. And now Steve, tell us, tell us what Steve ontological means. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Let's see if we could play games of how, how, what long, long words we can use this evening <laughs> to trip the moderator up. I think this you'll win. This might be a very difficult <laughs> evening for me. Um, on <laughs> 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 ontology simply means the being, the nature of being. Yes. Uh, and so when he says we're ontologically such and such, he's saying we are by nature such and such. So all of these big $5 million words, they have five cent meanings. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> when you break it down, oh, it's actually not Beautifully totally. put. <laughs> Philosophers have to, we have to, we have to feel we're earning our money, Steve. That's the <laughs> now, can, can I give you a bit of a pushback? Though, you absolutely you, can. You, you said, um, I'm not sure how that really answers the question of, if God is the source of moral values and moral duties and things like that, is he still a, a cosmic totalitarian? Whatever, whatever shots that he calls, that's what goes. Yeah, it's a good question, isn't it? I'd say, let me say a couple of things uh, around that. Firstly, actually, I think right at the beginning, I want to say, you know, in one sense, obviously, I'm coming at this from a Christian perspective, but it's helpful to recognize there are many in the atheistic tradition who recognize that I think there's something to be said for the, for the line that I'm taking this evening. So for example, Luc Ferry, who's a very well-known uh, French uh, philosopher on this very subject we're talking around this evening, says, you know, that uh, he points out that he says in you know, direct contradiction to the, to the Greek worldview and to many other, other, class, other, other of the uh, classical worldviews out there that had no problem with the idea that people were not equal. Um, I mean, Aristotle, you know, one of those brilliant uh, minds that's ever lived, mounted a very powerful argument for slavery, as many of us were, may be aware. And uh, Luke, in his book, A Brief History of Thought, um, is incredibly positive as, as an atheist philosopher about what Christianity brought to bear, that, because he said it was Christianity that uniquely, against that classical worldview, said that no, human beings are equal, and that wasn't, taken for, that wasn't obvious at the time. And he says it comes very clearly from that Christian conception of who human beings are and who Christians believe that God created them to be. Um, and he said whether or not we believe that story, we nevertheless need to be grateful to what we, uh, the tradition has bequeathed us. But in terms of uh, the, 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 the angle that you came in there, Steve, I think what's interesting is if, uh, I think one of the things that differentiates, say, Christianity from Islam, and one of the reasons I studied Islam was I really wanted to take a look at the, the other major monotheism out there. And I went into that study thinking they'd be largely the same. That was my, my very much my approach to the Quran, was going, well, okay, Christ Islam is a sister religion to Judaism and Christianity, it's gonna be largely the same. And there, I think one of the huge differences that angles into this question is in Islam you have a God who is distant and remote and transcendent, who never steps down into the world, never gets involved, who kind of sets the whole system up, who dispenses laws from heaven, but then actually never sort of gets involved in terms of the follow through. And then you compare that in the Christian tradition with a God who steps into history and actually gets his feet dusty with the dust of the world and his hands bloody with the nails of the world, who experiences suffering, for example, from the inside, not just the watching it from the outside. So I think the one thing you can say of the God of the Bible is he plays by his own, his own rules. He's got skin in the game. 
And I think what's around this whole issue of human rights as well, which we're talking about this evening, it's not so much the God of the Bible sitting up there in heaven and saying, right, you lot jolly well behave yourselves. It's God saying, no, I've created you as human beings with value and with dignity. In fact, I've shown that by the way that I've responded to you in the cross and the incarnation. And then out of that flow some things. Out of that flow things like rights. And also out of that flow duties. And one of the things we've only just begun to touch on, I think, this evening, is it's very easy in some of this conversation uh, around human rights just to focus on the rights aspect. But there's a very important conversation to be had about duties as well. Um, Ian and, and you and others here, myself, we all have a right you know, not to have our personal uh, integrity violated by, by somebody being violent to us, absolutely. But then also with that comes a responsibility to treat others in a, in a certain kind of way. And it was interesting, actually, right at the start, Ian, you made that comment about the golden rule. It's a very common confusion, actually, in philosophy of religion between the golden rule and the silver rule. The golden rule, the, the silver rule in, in, uh, in ethics is the one that says, don't do to others what you wouldn't have them do to you. So that says, you know, I shouldn't hit you because I don't want you to hit me. The golden rule, which goes considerably further and isn't found in Islam and isn't found in Confucianism, um, it's not only found in Christianity. Right. I forget where else it's found. It's in about a couple of places other than the lips of Jesus. Actually, says no, goes further than that. I should do to you as I wish you would do to me. So I should expend of my own energy. I should go the extra mile. I should serve you at, at great personal cost if, if necessary in terms of helping uh, meet your needs necessarily. Okay, then let's, uh, let's come to Ian. Sure. Um, uh, w- let me first let's have you respond to what Andy has said. If there's anything that you'd like to respond to, I'm sure there's there are lots, but lots of different things going on. I mean, yeah. you're a fantastic speaker, right? You know your stuff, and you're able to speak very fast, and you know. And that's I, not I, that's I, not. And you got the quotes right there as well. And I wrote some of my own things, and I refer to them a little bit. It's all bit Siri. It's all Siri. That does help. Yeah. In a couple of years, you're going to have Google Home sitting here and Siri sitting there, and you'll just ask it a question, and it'll be. Hey Alexa. A- Apple beats Google every time, my yeah. friend. <laughs> <laughs> But one of the things I've been thinking about is this idea that if Christianity was the sort of forefront of human rights or is that source, why, is, why did it take 1,500 years, 1,800 years, 1,900 years to really get to it? You know, like you said, you know, modern human rights is really a 1950s on. And there are elements of it, and you pointed to some of those, but it wasn't universal in that way. For a long time, Christianity was fine with slavery. It was fine with a lot of atrocities. You can look in the Bible, right, and find examples of God just saying, Sodom and Gomorrah, these cities need to go. That kind of offends that right, that belief in that human dignity that you've offended God and now you get wiped out. At least that reduces after Jesus comes and the New Testament is a little less gory, let's say, than some parts of the Old Testament. But my big question around there is just, if Christianity is this source of human rights, why was it 2017 when we said don't beat someone or you know don't discriminate someone in law because they're of trans or why was it 2004 before we legalized same-sex marriage in this country why did it take so hmm. long yeah i can didn't you ask me the question i can say let me say a couple of things quickly i mean one problem of course you run into there is if if you have the idea that human rights uh, and our understanding of them is unfolding then presumably of course one of the uh, sort of things that flows from that is we can't critique the past because, of course, we, know, we now know, you know better now 
So we've now worked out in 2017 that we should behave a certain way, but of course those poor saps in 1960 couldn't possibly have known that, and certainly right. not further back, which leads to strange peculiarities like we can't critique the slave trade, because again, maybe the slave trade was the very best that they could, they could do in the 17th century, um, the very best that the Greeks and the Persians and the Romans could do, and if only they'd known what we'd known, but they weren't as advanced. I think most of us, most of us in this room, certainly, certainly I would, would want to critique the past. I would want to say slavery has always been wrong. It was wrong when the Greeks did it. It was wrong when the Persians did it. It was wrong when the Chinese did it. In fact, slavery is an interesting example because every civilization known to anthropologists have practiced slavery. Um, we don't actually know of one as far as I'm, I'm, I'm aware. I've read relatively widely in this. Um, but the other angle of the question, why did it take so long? I'd say, I'd say a couple of things. Firstly, in one sense, it didn't. I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned to keep on the slavery angle for a moment. What's interesting, when you look at the, the pagan critics of Christianity in the first couple of hundred years, you take someone like Celsus, who's a very sort of cultured Roman, who writes very, very sort of polemically against Christianity, makes Richard Dawkins, you know, look like a sort of gentle grandmother um, by comparison. One of the things he says is Christianity is a religion of women and slaves because women and slaves were flocking to the early church. And the early church largely grew because it attracted the uh, lowest classes in society. It's been tremendous work historically uh, done looking at that. Because although Christianity didn't come out right and launch a full-blown emancipation movement, but there, bear in mind, when Christianity began, it was 0.004% of the Roman Empire. It only became 50% of the Roman Empire by about the mid-300s. But for those early years when it got going, the idea that in the New Testament teaches that in Christ there is no Jew nor Greek slave nor free, male or female, uh, as that began to eat away at the sort of lower echelons of Roman society, in, in, the, in the words of Rodney Stark, the, the historian of the early church, he said, you know, basically the, the, the rot had set in at the bottom of the Roman, Roman Empire at that point because it began breaking down those traditional barriers. So I think, I think certainly I, I agree with you that Christians took a while to catch on to some of the implications but I think some of the major ones were there early on, and the pagans knew it because Christianity was hammered on that very, very point. Do you want to move on, or do you want me to talk about the past, judging the past? Please. Okay. It was, was it's actually, an interesting question, right? Yeah, this I was idea, you and would it comes up so often because in the last couple of years we've seen these debates over statues and monuments and these kind of exactly. things, and they're fascinating discussions, right? Because yeah. let's take the Canadian example, John A. Macdonald, known for founding this country but also designed the residential school system, was known yeah. as a drunk and a racist. He was known as a drunk and a racist at the time, though. People, mm. that's not to say he was, like, racist for now, obviously, he was, but even at the time, he was on a more edge. So I think we can still even, if we want to judge him by his standards, and just like in the 1930s, we knew throwing people in gas chambers was wrong then. I'm sorry, I brought it back to Hitler this time. But... <laughs> So, but that's, but you know, you do raise this question of like, how, can we but take a less extreme example, your average person, I think we still should put a critical eye on the past. And that's not to say, you know, the average, the average person driving a boat across the Atlantic, maybe with the slaves, it's, it's tough for them, right? And so I'm not justifying what they did or why they didn't abolish it, but I think it's, it's, take, it's a little bit harder than just brushing it off as yeah. we've learned better now. Can I? I we might get stuck on this yeah, topic, um, but if, I, I'd like to, I'll let Steve. Sure. I'd like to move on quickly. There is Q&A time, though, so if, there are, if there's anything that's unresolved here, you 
the audience might wish to bring some of these questions and, and pose them to our speakers. Um, one of the things that uh, I often hear from my atheist friends and things like that uh, is because I, uh, one of my areas of interest in philosophy and things like that is meta-ethics. So I, I study ethics a lot and um, because I myself am a theist, uh, I'll talk often in conjunction with you know the existence of God and so on and so forth. And my atheist friends always tell me, you know what? I'm a decent person. I don't believe in God, right? And I, I'm glad I met you today because you know there's always this kind of when I first started emailing you, I don't really know you, right? You're just an email address. <laughs> I didn't so, know you either. <laughs> right, exactly. And I'm so glad I met you because I, I meet you. Know, you, yeah. uh, you don't believe in God, but you seem like a decent person. There are many uh, secular humanists and atheists and agnostics that are decent people. On the other hand, there are lots of religious people. Some are decent, some are not. Mm -hmm. And so that, that seems to suggest to my atheist friends that, that you, don't, you don't need God to be moral. You don't need God to believe in human rights and decency and so on and so forth. What are your thoughts on that? <coughs> Do I agree with your atheist friends? Yes. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I th it's sort of that question we're getting back to of human rights and like how do we approach these questions and that you know silver golden rule is a great start this idea of what kind of society do we want to live in and these answers that revolve around how should we treat one another i think have simple answers because if we sort of look at the history of human evolution we get to this point where human tribes leave africa and spread out around the world if you have almost like the petri dish of earth of experiments and you have societies where they practice human sacrifice and if that goes too far the society died out in some cases some of them were also pushed by flus that came over from the europeans that they weren't ready for but you have other societies where if say murder was just promoted and everyone was great with murder and stealing that society wouldn't function well right just because transactionally, you couldn't trust anyone. I actually liked, you have this great video about human rights, and I think that leads into some of these conversations, but you talk about, in that, the idea of transactions and money. But money is a human invention, and where we get the value for money is because we have both agreed, and the government also backs us up on this, that this money has value. And I think of human rights and morality in a similar way. We all agree with each other, and so my, I give you value and you give me value. We don't need God to do it, we do it to each other. Okay, um, before I come to you, um, one of the questions that I had for you is, uh, you look at something like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, one of the critiques there is that this is exactly what it says it is, it's a declaration. So one of the problems is that it's not, uh, it's hard to enforce, it's not binding on anybody. So let, let's say, let's grant your position that um, we discover human rights or we invent human rights, we, we develop them as we go in order to make a functioning society uh, that, where human beings can flourish. Now, um, let's say uh, uh, Ted Bundy comes along or, or some, uh, somebody, oh, I didn't want to bring him up, but maybe not Hitler, but let's say Mao. You know, somebody <laughs> like that comes along. Um, <clears throat> What, on, on your worldview uh, of secular humanism, atheism, and things like that, what makes these things like human rights binding on such people? It is still that transaction. So the principles are there because, as, we, as I sort of discussed, the idea that a society that permits that to flourish, that 
hatred, that bigotry, that violence doesn't last. It destroys itself. So it can't last. And so we have developed, at least in Canada and some other countries, systems to rein that in a bit. And it varies around the world. Some countries have none. Some have very strong hate speech laws and other things like that. And that's a very complex debate. And I think that's where democracy comes in. Like, we need to debate these things. When we don't, you end up in Soviet Union, and we know where that leads. And so in Canada, we have a human rights regime at the federal level that says governments can't do this to you. Private businesses can't close the door if you're black. They can't close the door if you're gay. You have to treat everyone equally. In your personal life, do whatever you want, you know, your freedom. You can say what you want, you can believe what you want. But if you're going to, you know, refuse someone at the door to this event because they're disabled, then you have devalued Maddie's life. Yeah, I think there's a number of really interesting things there. I had to fight to get in this evening. They said you've got an English accent, you can't come in. So I'm glad to hear you <laughs> standing up for, for, equal, uh, for equal rights uh, for all. Yeah, I think, um, I think I'd say a couple of things really, really interesting. That I think the first thing that's fascinating, um, in, as I was listening to, to, to Ian there, I think is, of course, one of the things we sometimes do, particularly here in the West, is we forget that Western civilization is a, is a small microscopic bubble in the whole history of, of humanity. And we often forget the fact that the, li the liberties and the privileges that we, we take for granted here are a minor blip in the history of humanity. Now, I hope they carry on. I hope, modern hum I hope, I hope human rights continues. I hope freedom of speech grows. I think the jury's out on that because there are lots of... The idea that actually if cultures look like us, they thrive. If they don't, they're going to be in trouble. I'm not sure that holds out historically. Um, I think you could look at it. Uh, Islam had an incredibly huge empire uh, for something like 1,300 years until the end of the Ottoman Empire, uh, which did, and it didn't hold to any of these things. The Greeks, the Romans, uh, you could argue China and Russia uh, today, very, very old historic civilizations who take a slightly different view, as you just acknowledged. So I think the jury is actually out on whether the kind of thing, the, the kind of model we've constructed here in Canada, and to a lesser extent in, in, in Europe as well, where we're running a similar kind of experiment, is going to hold out. I think we need to not take that for granted, at the very least, um, because otherwise we're, we're in real trouble, I think is the, is, the, is, the, is the first thing. I think the other thing I want to press back into as, uh, as well is also the idea that we keep circling around of, you know, these kind of, these kind of rights, these privileges, these things that we enjoy, are they just creations? Are they just created by the state? In which case the state can theoretically take them away. Um, or are they, are they innate? Do they go deeper? And the idea that the state can take them away, I don't think that's just a sort of a you know, worry-mongering thing. I think a really good live example of that would be if you look at the dis discussion going on right now around Down syndrome, that people within the Downs community would say, would describe what's happening there to their community right now as genocide, with, with, with an organized attempt to ensure in many sort of modern uh, liberal democracies that there are no people with Downs ever born again. Um, and if you talk to disability rights advocates, that's a very live discussion. And we have, my wife and I have two very close uh, sets of friends who both have Down syndrome children who feel incredibly passionate about the way that, to use Andy's words from the start, Down's people right now are being dehumanized. And uh, the talk is of removing Down's from society, but you're actually talking about removing people rather than removing uh, yeah, a condition. And I just think that's, uh, I think we sometimes are not as advanced as we think uh, we are, and that's a, a sobering uh, issue to reflect on as well. Well, I, I don't want to get into the Downs debate because I'm 
woefully ill-prepared for that. I think it's a very fraught one, and I think it is worth debating. It's definitely a discussion that should be had, but I'm just going to hands off that one. Uh, but what I do want to pick up on there is this idea that, yes, it is fraught. Uh, we look at in Canada right now, and there are, countless, there are countless people living without clean water in this country. In 20, 2018, there are people who get shot by police, get shot in the street, and no one cares. You know, we have an inquiry into missing, murdered Indigenous women and girls because a lot of the times the police don't treat them the same. And so this country is going through an effort to try to talk about these issues, and this is where this vigilance that I think we both agree on about free speech, about human rights and all of these things, and that's why I honestly love that video and everything Andy said that he introduced about dehumanization. I was like, I agree with literally everything he has just said. But then he didn't bring God into it, so it was fine for all of us, right? <laughs> he will. He will. He, oh, worry. of course. I think that's like that's what video three, video four. I'm just teasing. But it's a great project, and it's important that we have these dialogues and we talk about these things because you're right that Western civilization, these human rights as we know them, are a blip, and you know the history shows empires tend to go out after some amount of time, and maybe the U.S. is on a back track right now. Maybe it'll revert, and people will get over their authoritarian stream, or maybe we'll be living next to a nightmare. That's not optimistic. I, let's turn this around in the last yeah, 15 yeah. minutes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I want to come back to the idea of bringing God into this. Mm. Uh, my question to you is, what difference does it make, since we seem to be you know, largely in agreement that uh, uh, yeah. the human rights lead to human flourishing, uh, so what difference does it make if God comes into this? Can't, can't we have it just yeah. as communities of humans? I think, it's a, I think it's a great question, Steve. I'd say, let me say a couple of things around that. The first, actually, was one, was one other thing I wanted to respond to Ian earlier on, and it's great, I'm eight hours off Vancouver time, so, I'm, so I sort of feel like I'm sort of firing at 70% capacity. My aged brain is like, hang on, there was something else I was going to say, and you've... Uh, and you'd, uh, you just reminded me of it. And it's gone again. See, this is great. Isn't jet lag, isn't jet lag wonderful? Um, yeah, what is, oh no, that's, yeah, so what does God bring into it? So um, this ties into what we were talking about earlier. So it's exactly this. It's the question of, we touched on the, uh, on the topic a few moments ago about, about good. And you put the question to Ian as, you know, can you be an atheist and be a good person? And he responded, well, of course you can, and I completely agree. Can you be a Christian and be a nut job? Yes, absolutely. Uh, can you be the president of America? And, no, actually, let's not go there. Um, <laughs> Hang on, there's a tweet coming from a Mr. D. Trump of... <laughs> um, the question, of course, around goodness, and it ties exactly into this question around bringing God into this, isn't so much can you be good or can you not be good, but does the good actually exist? Ultimately, when push comes to shove, and human beings are pretty good at both pushing and shoving, when push comes to shove, do we just have a set of preferences? And see, for me, one of the most fascinating atheist philosophers of all time, who I always enjoy reading because he always provokes me to, to think, is Friedrich Nietzsche, the 19th century uh, atheist philosopher, who, I mean, it was before the modern human rights movement, but he saw where things were going. And he, and he railed against this idea of humans being equal. And he said the idea that human beings are equal is, is a myth put up by little people to try and make sure that the people with the power behave as they wish. Because as Nietzsche saw it, it's very simple. If you have power, you get, to, you get to define reality. If you don't have power, you're part of the herd and you have to just go along with it. 
Now, we may look at that and think, really? I mean, is that a bit extreme? I put it to you, just look at the large tech companies running the world today. We're increasingly finding reality defined by a small series of oligarchs. So when it comes to good and evil, in other words, is it just personal preference? And as long as our preference is aligned that we shouldn't murder, people shouldn't steal glass of water, it's okay. But if we get enough of us to come up with a different set of preferences, then, uh, then all bets are off. And I think it's the same around the human rights tradition, Steve, to go, at the end of the day, we can all agree that we like the idea of human rights. The question is, are they founded on anything? Is it just that we've got enough of us together who go, yeah, we think this is okay, but should we ever reach a tipping point the other way? Should this particular candle of a civilization blow out and somebody else come to the fore on the world stage who doesn't hold human rights as, uh, as important as perhaps we do here in Canada? All bets are off. And the analogy I sometimes use, because I'm a great believer in analogies, Steve, runs <laughs> like this. Let's imagine that you, know, you and I are sitting having, a, having a, a beer down the local pub with a friend of ours. We meet him every couple of weeks for a drink. And uh, our friend is a flat earther. Um, there are quite, there's a whole flat earth theories taking off again. Have you discovered this? Yeah, this is. I know, you Google it, and it's not just like religious weird. people, it's really strange weird, yeah. folks who are getting onto this. Anyway, so Afrin is a flat earth person. He believes. You're not, that, right? No. <laughs> okay. No, it's, it's, it's Wednesday, isn't it? Thursday okay, I am, okay. but not on Wednesday. <laughs> and um, anyway, we're talking to our friends, and he says to us, Oh, by the way, guys, I won't see you next week. Um, I'm away on vacation. And we go, oh, that's lovely. Where are you going? And our friend says, I'm going on a round-the-world cruise. And we go, hang on. I thought you said you're a flat earther. How can you go on a round-the-world cruise? And at that point, he gets really angry and starts thumping the table and says, how dare you discriminate against the scientifically challenged? You know, people who believe in the flat earth have every right to go on round-the-world cruises. <laughs> and here's the thing. He's absolutely right. You can believe in the Flat Earth, you can be a member of the Flat Earth Society, you can have a Flat Earth t-shirt, Flat Earth beer mats. In fact, you don't want round Earth beer mats because your beer falls off them. Um, <laughs> and you can go on round the world cruises. But the thing is, what you espouse and your beliefs don't actually support your practice. And I think the same is true when it comes to things like justice and right and wrong and human rights and dignity. You can say you believe in them. You can passionately do that. The question is when you kind of lift the lid and look underneath, doesn't he, as a word for Steve to explain, does your, do your metaphysical beliefs, do your beliefs about the very nature of reality actually undergird what you believe about human rights and dignity, or actually have you got lovely sounding platitudes, but ultimately they're not based on anything substantive? So uh, let's come back to you, Ian. Sure. Um, so when you say that human rights are really important, it, it, it leads to a society where human beings can flourish, the, the societies that, right. that, uh, uh, that, that flourish. Now, that seems to me like a bit of a, is it just, sorry, you said earlier, what kind of a society that do we want to live in? We obviously mm -hmm. want to live in a society where people's rights are respected, that you're not discriminated against, so on and so forth. Now, that sounds a little bit like that. It, that's just our preference. Uh, what if there are people that come together and say, we want a society where it is a strict totalitarian rule for everybody because that's the way, that's the way to go. Um, so m my question to you is, one, is this just a matter of preference, or is there something that's objective beyond that? And secondly, um, as a secular humanist, uh, how, how do you ground 
human rights? What, what, what is the source of right. human rights? On the first part, I think I'll just bite the bullet and call myself a relativist at you know, eight minutes left just to have fun <laughs> with it, right? Uh, but where is the grounding for human rights in humanism? For me, it's these values of human dignity, human autonomy, and respecting Maybe it's a platinum rule. Actually, I think there is a platinum rule, but let's you know call it the That's titanium. Like the, miles. You know the higher rule of let's treat each other in a way so that we build each other yeah. up rather than tear each other down. Let's you know try to empower people, and that's where not promoting discrimination comes from. This is idea of should we you know make fun of your friend because he's a flat earther. Well, we should try to guide him towards reality because I think there is value in science and evidence about the world. But you know what? In the end, if he wants to go on a flat earth around the world cruise, like you say, he's allowed to do that. We don't know how he's going to do it, but he's allowed to. <laughs> but it kind of ties back when you're talking about that and that way and that analogy got me thinking about, you know, there are certain things that we don't say are human rights. And it kind of makes me wonder, are there rights that you would say are human rights and wouldn't? Like, do you extend, like, what is the limit of human rights? What's, what's your definition even of human rights as we use them in Canada? Is it this broad one? Does it include gender identity expression? Does it include the same sex or homosexuals and gay people? I think, I think that, that is a very good question, right? I, I mean, what is that principle? I think you, you mentioned principle. What mm -hmm. is that principle? upon which the, the human rights is founded on. Um, would you like to? Oh, what is that principle? Is the autonomy, dignity, and the, it is a, it's not a fundamental, supernatural, objective principle. It's a relativistic principle in some ways for me personally. It's this idea that we discuss these issues and we come to an understanding of what rights are. He's, I know Andy's talked about uh, human rights in a way of like, it's what the state says now. Well, not actually, because there are people right now who are saying we actually need to add socioeconomic status to the BC Human Rights Code because there are people who might get turned away from a place because they look too poor. And is that, you know, their fault? Not often. Like some people have a bad streak of luck, right? And that doesn't mean you shouldn't be allowed certain opportunities because if you can't get, then you're stuck in this cycle of poverty. So there's a good argument there, I think. And having these rational discussions about, you know, what ground should we expand it to? Should we expand human rights to hair color and baldness, maybe? To what about, go. you know, there's all different kinds and, you know, should we extend human rights to be, you have the right to wear whatever t-shirt you want? Well, maybe that's a freedom of expression issue, but you know, some things, maybe aren't human rights, fundamental human rights? So then would you say this, this is something, like no. you said earlier, something that we develop as we go? Is it almost like trial and error? Is, is some things seem to lead to human flourishing, other things not? So is that how we determine I think it? it's a mix of trial and error and just having democratic discussions and debates and listening to people's personal stories. I think that's one thing that's been really powerful is when people... I think there's actually good studies that show when you know someone who's gay, you're more likely to respect LGBT rights. And so hearing those stories and having empathy, these kind of things that are evolved human bits, things, 
that gives us bases to, from which we can have reasoned debates. And that's why I think we talk about human rights rather than just broad rights in general, because humans are, as far as we know, the only animal that's capable of sitting on a stage for an hour and talking about this and not getting hungry or, well, I'm getting a bit hungry, but, you know, <laughs> do, doing the animalistic things. But there is, I think, also some value in what animal rights activists talk about in terms of not harming sentient creatures because they can feel harm. And, you know, I'm not a vegetarian, but they sometimes make me feel really bad. So maybe they have a point. Don't okay. eat them. Yeah. yeah. Okay, we the have... Vegetarian, or the vegetarians or the animal rights activists? <laughs> Uh, we only have a few minutes we left, do. so in just a couple of minutes, let, let's just hear a summary of your views here. Let's start with you, Andy. Um, let's give you two minutes. Can you, can you give us a summary of what you would like to sort of what you would like to leave the audience with? Yeah, I think I want to circle back to right where we began. And what's interesting and encouraging is, to re is the fact that Ian and I, I think, agree, uh, particularly in the way you just uh, framed it a moment ago. There, that, you know, human beings have dignity, they have value, uh, they have worth, all these other kind of things. That's the kind of language that we use when we talk about human rights. And so the question I want us to, to, to have in our minds as we go into the Q&A is, do we really, or are those just words that we sort of throw out because they make us feel good and they sort of roughly give us something to hang these things that we, we think matter but we can't give a grounding to? And what's fascinating is when you actually start reading in the literature around, around human rights, everybody recognizes there's a, there's a problem. Um, so for example, to leave you one last uh, name who's incredibly worth reading if you have the time. Um, at Harvard University, there's a wonderful uh, law professor there called, um, called Michael Sandel, who wrote a wonderful book called Justice, What's mm. the Right Thing to Do? And he just, he looked, on that book, he surveys a number of theories of morality and how we determine good and right, right uh, good and right, evil, evil, right and wrong, justice and injustice, talks about human rights. And he ends up at the end of that book with this conclusion. He says, uncomfortable as it may make some of my readers, he said, we can't actually answer the question of human flourishing unless we first answer the question of what actually does the good life look like? What actually is a human being? And that's one of the questions we've danced around tonight, and that's where I want to end my piece here with. You know, are we just very cleverly evolved creatures and nothing, left, left, uh, nothing, less than that, nothing more than that? We're just hairless apes who got lucky in the evolutionary, uh, in the evolutionary game. Are we, just a, are we just a collection, some of us more hairless than others, yes. <laughs> are we just a collection of atoms and particles? And I can point you to atheist writers who would answer yes to both of those questions. Or are we as the Christian tradition tells you, are you more than that? Are you made in the image of God, created by a God who loves you, uh, who created you with a purpose, who knows you by name and demonstrated the value that you have when he came into space and time and history in the person of Jesus and went to the cross on your behalf? And many, many writers, and not just Christian ones, incidentally, would suggest that that last of those three options I've laid out there gives you by far the strongest basis for human rights. Uh, Raymond Gator, the Australian atheist philosopher, says, I don't know of no better basis for human rights than the Christian tradition. Atheism, we haven't yet, he says, produced anything like it. That doesn't answer the question, is it true? That's a whole other discussion. But I think when you look at the options on, on the table, I think it gives you the greatest foundation for human value, human dignity, human worth, what it really means to be human. Okay. Now, I know the countdown timer has less than two minutes left, but really take, take no, your time. <laughs> Let it go us, red. Yeah. Yeah, give us a summary of what you would yeah. like to leave the audience with. Yeah. 
I think I agree with your idea that you know, we're not going to answer these questions tonight. And Michael Sandel's absolutely right. And I've watched some of those justice videos, and they're fantastic. Like I said off the top, I'm not the philosopher. I've dabbled. I'm not the theologian or the historian or the religious scholar. I'm just a guy with a bunch of physics degrees. Like I was talking about earlier, I played with a bunch of lasers, which aren't really relevant here, but they're cool. But very cool. Very cool. Very cool. But for me, maybe it ultimately is this question of, you know, what do you have your faith in? My faith is in humanity, that we can develop these rights. And it's weird language for you know, the atheist, the humanist on the stage to talk about the faith we have. But in a way, at some point, maybe we do just have to say, you know what, your faith is that these rights came from God. My faith is that if we believe in each other and we work together and have these discussions, we can come to a collective understanding of what human rights are and build a better society. Ultimately, I don't know who, which of us is going to be proved right. I hope we both live to see it. But ultimately, like you point out, most societies have failed eventually. And most empires have fallen. Hopefully, this one lasts longer. All right, let's give them a round of applause to show our appreciation. Thank you both for joining us, Andy and Ian. Mm -hmm.